right. So this is a, uh, a Bressy funded and uh, Bressy and Arby co-sponsored talk by Dr. Yuncho Huang. And of course, Bressy's CUNY's Black Race and Ethnic Studies Initiative. And uh, Ari is a CUNY, uh, um, CUNY-wide organization that, of longstanding Asian American Asian Research Institute dedicated to um, Asian American uh, scholarship. Um, so this is the beautiful book, uh, if you can see. Uh, this is uh, uh, Dr. Kong's uh, newest book, Chinese Whispers Toward a Trans-Pacific Poetics. Uh, he's written two other Trans-Pacific books. Uh, this one's my favorite because uh, I, I think it combines both his scholarly voice and the, the voice of his more popular cultural studies, of which he's written three, uh, one on Charlie Chan, uh, one on the Chang and Ng Siamese twins, and one coming out, I believe, in August on Anna Mae Wong. Uh, he's a distinguished scholar, best-selling author, and past Guggenheim Fellow, who is currently a professor at the University of California at Santa Barbara. In addition, uh, so I've already said that, um, in Chinese Whispers, Dr. Huang questions the relationship between poetry and politics, and whether the intelligibility of poetry can be separated from the cultural, and I think I would say personal context of its making. Is poetic language political or personal, universal or cultural, translatable or untranslatable? And uh, with that, I will turn it over to uh, Dr. Huang and say we are so happy and grateful to have you speaking on your new book today. Great. Well, thank you. Um, well, thank you, Dr. Tong, uh, for the very generous introduction. And I thank everybody who's here. Um, as uh, Dr. Tong uh, said, uh, you know, part of my, uh, sort of like the essence of my scholarship is uh, somewhat anecdotal in a very old-fashioned Chinese way. I think the old days, you know, called the Yesh, anecdotal history. And or in the kind of Western scholarship, there's new historicism, uh, which is very, you know, uh, invested in this, um, the ability of anecdotes opening up, you know, the entire uh, picture of a society and sort of. So, um, so I wrote this book, uh, which came out in, uh, from University of Chicago Press, um, uh, last year. So today I'm just going to talk out of this book and to share some stories and, uh, you know, um, and, and then we can have a conversation, uh, if we may. So, uh, in fall 2003, um, almost actually 20 years ago, time flies, literally. Um, uh, resuming my almost aimless wandering that had brought me from China, uh, to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, then to Buffalo, New York, and then Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, I relocated from New England to California to join the English faculty at the University of California, Santa Barbara, which is where I am at the moment. Upon arrival, I went to school to set up my new office, um, like a country doctor getting ready for practice in a new town. I put up a sign on the door, on my office door, uh, that read, that read, <laughs> serve the people, read them verse. Very soon, um, a colleague in the English department ran into me in the hallway 
a silver-haired man in his 60s, copper-skinned like a surfer after years under the California sun, he pointed at a sign and asked, do you really believe in that? I wish I were glibber, um, because then I would have been able to quip, quoting Woody Guthrie, I ain't necessarily a pink commie, but I've been in the red all my life. Instead, I explained to my colleague in earnest that the word serve in the Maoist shibboleth was actually an anagram, a verse. Anagram meaning you scramble the letters, you come up with different words. So, so serve and a verse, if you <laughs> relocate S uh, you know, to the later, you get a verse. So that's an anagram. And that's the reason I added in case he did not notice. For the special alignment of the two and the grammatic words in the middle of the sign, because in the sign, I, I intentionally put them together so you can see at a glance what the wordplay is. I thought by clarifying the embedded wordplay, as well as the fact that I'm a sucker for puns, will satisfy my colleague's curiosity. But I was wrong. He asked again, still, do you actually believe in that? I could almost hear Sigmund Freud turning in his grave for I was at a loss explaining what I meant to be a joke. Maybe by repurposing the slogan, serve the people, and adding my own twist, read them verse, I unconsciously did, to paraphrase Stanley Cavell, mean what I say. Uh, Stanley Cavell, a very famous Harvard uh, philosopher, once wrote a book called, Must We Mean What We Say? Because he figures out actually it's very difficult to say what we want to say or mean what we say because of the, you know, the puns and the complexity of language. After all, I had been hired to teach poetry and Asian American literature, and my colleague knew that. And coming from China, I had at least a penchant for believing in serving the people by reading them verse, whether biblical or satanic, uh, proletarian or bourgeois. Nothing, as Freud said, is more dead serious, serious than a joke. My reply to my colleague's follow-up query was a half-hearted, non-committal maybe. But as Charlie Chan once said, every maybe has a wife called maybe not. The brief encounter stayed with me, uh, making me constantly look back on my own intellectual journey in poetry, my wandering itinerary across the Pacific, and between English and Chinese, trying to figure out wh on what purpose, part of my pun again, does verse serve. In summer 1991, fresh out of college, I left China, swearing never to return to a country ruled by a government that had so brutally crushed a student protest in which I, like millions of others, had participated. I landed, of all places, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, not knowing a thing about the Deep South, I had thought I could see Times Square from there, sort of like Tina Fey's impersonation of Sarah Palin, hallucinating that she could see Russia from her bedroom window in Alaska. <laughs> For those of you who know the anecdote, it's actually, you know, the Saturday Night Live, the shtick was, was fantastic. That's really the best thing about America is comedy. I was one disoriented Oriental. The proverbial cultural shock came in other forms as well. At the University of Alabama, I took a directed reading course with my mentor, Hank Lazar. One of the books I had to read was Tender Buttons by Gertrude Stein, a modernist text full of puns, 
polyentendre and labyrinthine sentences. With a BA in English, I knew most of the words in that neat little volume, but I was clueless about how to make sense of such sentences as carafe, that is a blind glass, roast potatoes full, or dining is west. I was insomniac the night before my meeting with Hank to discuss Gertrude Stein, inconsolably depressed, thinking it must be my must be the deficiency of my English that had made the book so incomprehensible. The next day at the meeting, Hank assured me that it's not me or my English, but almost everyone, every native speaker of English, would find Stein baffling or challenging, at least initially. Sure enough, over the years, Stein grew on me, and now I regularly teach tender buttons in my courses, in part to torture my students a little, as the book had once tormented me. I actually just taught a class, uh, taught Stein in my 200 student lecture. Um, compared to Stein, the other book on the syllabus was a harder nut to crack and induced a real shock in me. It was Repression and Recovery, Modern American Poetry and the Politics of Cultural Memory, 1910-1945, by Carrie Nelson, a well-known left-wing pro-Marxist intellectual from the University of Illinois. Nelson's book, as its title indicates, intends to recover a repressed cultural memory of the modern era, a period in which a tradition of political poetry flourished in important subcultures and in moments of national crisis before it came to full fruition in the Harlem Renaissance and in the widely publicized 1930s. Nelson goes beyond the dominant story of modern poetry, revises our notion of the social function of poetry, and re-examines the work of marginalized or forgotten poets, particularly women, blacks, and the writers on the left. He argues that what we now worship as the great modernist canon, consisting of a handful of literary giants, such as Edgar Pound and T.S. Eliot, was really a cultural construction of post-World War II America. Quote, by the 1950s, a limited canon of primary authors and texts was already in place, Nelson writes. The main names in the canon continue to change, but a substantial majority of interesting poems from 1910 to 1945 had already been forgotten. Academic critics had come to concentrate on close readings of a limited number of texts by quote-unquote major authors. University course requirements were increasingly influential in shaping the market for new anthologies. And the professorial right, largely white and male and rarely challenged from within their own, its own ranks, found it easy to reinforce the culture's existing racism and sexism by ignoring poetry by minorities and women, unquote. Nelson's line of argument may sound convincing, but for a 20-something me, fresh off the, off the boat, the kind of poetry she, she tried to recover and promote as interesting was almost exactly the kind of literature I was running away from. So let me explain. Leaving aside Nelson's argument for a moment, the illustrations in his book assaulted my senses at the time. Many of the images, magazine covers, billboards, and pamphlets look eerily familiar. Growing up in the waning days of Mao's China, I had seen these politicized images everywhere every day. Even after Mao's death, 
and as China opened up in the reform era under Deng Xiaoping, socialist iconography glorifying the power of the proletariat and propagating the centrality of class struggle remained ubiquitous in China. Besides the imagery, the kind of poetry Nelson re-examines or recovers was also familiar to me. One of the poets he touts, H. H. Lewis, also known as the Plow Poet of Missouri, published a poetry pamphlet called Thinking of Russia in 1932. Lewis's title poem goes like this. I'm always thinking of Russia. I can't keep her out of my head. I don't give a damn for Uncle Sam. I'm a left-wing radical red. This is 1932. Just to think, today, we'll have to probably revise the last line as a I'm a right-wing radical nut. <laughs> Just see how the world has turned, you know, 1930s. It's the, you have to be a radical left to give a damn, don't give a damn to Uncle Sam in the other way. Or the following famous poem, The Preacher and the Slave by Joe Hill, a Swedish-born um, labor activist, songwriter, and a member of the Industrial worker, uh, Workers of the World, or Wobblies, right, who was executed in 1915 after controversial murder trial. Quote, long-haired preachers come out every night, try to tell you what's wrong and what's right. But when asked how about something to eat, they will answer with the voices so sweet. You will eat by and by in that glorious land above the sky. Work and pray, lay long hay. You'll get high in the sky when you die. The English phrase, high in the sky, was actually coined by Joe Hill in this poem. So today we say it's a pie in the sky. I remember listening to the popular song, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night when I had first started learning English, a song that had been performed by singers ranging from Paul Robeson to most recently Bruce Springsteen. So this song, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, um, so here's um, Paul Robeson singing Hi, this. I'm Sorry, Nicole this Hawking is Anne. from Sandy Hill Promise. I know this is hard to hear, but it's important. I dreamed I saw joy last night. Alive as you are, says I, but you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never In Salt Lake City, just as I am standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I says Joe, The cover bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. 
So just give you a taste if you're interested, you know, both of them are unavailable on YouTube. Um, so I was learning English uh, by listening to these songs. These are, you know, our teaching materials uh, when I was uh, learning English. As interesting, um, as interesting as these poems were, they were highly politicized, as you see, used as propaganda to raise social consciousness, generate class solidarity, and advance a political cause, or to adopt the Maoist parlance. These are examples of literature serving the people. Or as happened in socialist China when I was growing up, literature was part of the government controlled propaganda machine designed for the purpose of social engineering. Given my intellectual orientation upon my arrival in the United States, that kind of literature was anathema to me, at least at the time. Up to that point, my journey in, liter my journey in literature was somewhat typical of what my generation of Chinese had experienced. Growing up in the wake of the Cultural Revolution, we were offered at school an ideologically cleansed curriculum. But many of us, by happenstance or by choice, found nutrition and inspiration elsewhere, outside of the classrooms. Uh, for myself, for instance, as a teenager, um, I secretly listened to the Voice of America programs, uh, radio program. And the story goes like this, you know, uh, well, when I was about 11, uh, just in beginning uh, junior high. And uh, one night um, I was, uh, <clears throat> I had just started uh, learning English in school. So one night I was fiddling with an old battered transistor radio. In those years, you know, there was no TV. Um, I saw my first TV when I was about 13. It was at a grocery shop, the owner in town. He was rich enough to afford the first television set in our town. 
And as you can imagine, it was a good、uh, way to attract customers because we all stop by and watch TV and buy, buy something from him. So anyway, but but in those years, every family household in China has household in China had a transistor radio. It's a shortwave radio.、Uh, it enables you to listen to all sorts of radios, you know, programs all over the world. But of course, the government will scramble signals, some of the signals and all that.、Uh, one night, I was fiddling with the old battered transistor radio that had belonged to my grandfather, but was now left to lie around in our house. I pulled up the rusted, crooked antenna and switched to shortwave radios, adjusting the dial to search for frequency with bearable audibility. Most channels simply buzzed, either because the machine was too old or because the signals had, had, as often happened in the Cold War years, been scrambled by the government. I suddenly came to a spot where, after a few snarls of ecstatic. A clear, slow, and manly voice in English rang out. This is VOA, the Voice of America, broadcasting in special English. And I was 11 at the time, and I just came across this、uh, radio program. This encounter、um, became a turning point in my life. In the ensuing high school years, I regularly tuned into the daily half-hour broadcast. Which began with ten minutes of the latest news, followed by twenty minutes of feature programming in American culture, history, science, or short stories. My favorite was the short program called "Words and Their Stories," which introduced American idioms and their colorful etymologies. That's how I learned, for instance, the meanings of gerrymander, powwow, bogus, and gobbledygook. The language is called Special English because its vocabulary is limited to 1,500 words, written in short and simple sentences that supposedly contain only one idea, and is spoken at a slower pace, about two-thirds the speed of standard English, so the listeners can learn, pick up English while being indoctrinated. Actually,、um, you know, this is actually propaganda.、Uh, completely oblivious. To the ideological agendas of the VOA, Voice of America, a propaganda machine controlled by the U.S. State Department in the Cold War era, and also, as I now realize, at the risk of sending my parents to jail because listening to quote-unquote politically subversive foreign radio programs was illegal at the time, and the parents will be held responsible for any political crimes committed by the pre-adult children. I learned from the broadcasts a great deal of English, so this is really, you know, the the environment in which I I acquired English. But not just that,、um, so I have not only learned a great deal of English from VOA,、um, but I also read a lot of Western literature and translation, anything from Goethe to Leo Tolstoy to Genev, Mark Twain, Jack London, Pablo Neruda, Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, Victor Hugo, and Flaubert. In high school, I was also addicted to the poetry of Alexander Pushkin. In college, I encountered a group of Chinese poets called the Mystic School, ah,、uh, Menglong Shi, including Bei Dao, Gu Cheng, Shu Ting, Yang Lian, and Jiang He. A radical departure from the formulaic language of Mao's era, the work of the Mystic poets was dense with symbolism, rebellious in emotions, and unconventional in technique. As we know. They acquired the trademark "misty" for their poetry's semantic opacity, 
uh, a quality dreaded by a regime that favors literature with clear messages. Avoiding overt political agendas then became a rebellious political gesture, or as said in what has now become almost a cliche, being apolitical was paradoxically the most political in 1980s China, a sentiment aptly expressed by Beidao in a poem called The Answer, Beidao. I came into this world bringing only paper, rope, shab, a shadow, to proclaim before the judgment the voices that have been judged. Influenced by the mystic poets, I studied 20th century American poetry in college and immersed myself in the work of Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, Wallace Stevens, Robert Lowell, Silver Plath, Adrian Rich, and so on. My senior thesis was on Lowell's Skunk Hour, and my familiarity with that poem enabled me to pass a, a very strange interview when I applied for my visa at the American consulate in Beijing. A story for the sake of time, better left for another occasion, but you can ask me during Q&A if you want. At any rate, poetry, or a particular kind of conceptual poetry, intentionally apolitical, dwelling on the personal and interior, spurning overt ideological agendas, was my ticket to America. Until, that is, I came across the book by Nelson and was exposed once again to the use of literature as propaganda, albeit in an entirely different cultural milieu. I was also surprised to find that many of the American intellectuals, especially baby boomers, who came of age during the tumultuous 60s, were, were well versed in the complicated relations between literature and politics, and were not averse at all to the idea of literature as propaganda. In fact, the more sophisticated and radical among them taught me to understand how mainstream American poetry, or what Charles Bernstein has dubbed the official verse culture, is ideologically problematic in its endless pursuit of lyrical interiority, a narrow concept of craft, and a consumptive mode of close reading. I began to understand that, for instance, Pound's work is not limited to his short imagistic work and that his poetry and politics, including his half-baked economic theory and noisome radical uh, racial attitude, are inseparable. More important, it was in this period following my arrival in the United States and then my subse subsequent graduate study at SUNY Buffalo's poetics program that I began to look anew at contemporary Chinese poetry as it has been translated and received in the United States. As I looked at the English translations from contemporary China, most of which were still limited to selections of, mystic, of the mystic poets and their associates, I identified a dominant theme, a preference for political rhetoric to aesthetic values. Indeed, when treated thematically, much of what had been available in English translation of contemporary Chinese poetry often yielded the expected content familiar in political science and in self-serving U.S. narratives of what it is like to suffer under non-democratic regimes. Typically, the poems that were introduced told the story of fighting for democracy, yearning for freedom, awakening to self-consciousness, and rediscovering subjectivity. In other words, these were poems that might easily be contextualized with respect to an image of contemporary China familiar to U.S. readers. 
In my subsequent new PhD dissertation, later turned into a book, I call this approach ethnographic because poetry in this sense was used, was used to describe a culture. Such an ethnographic approach, as I later discovered, was not a far cry from an earlier period when American modernism was secretly but actively used as a weapon in what has now become, what has become known as the Cultural Cold War. According to scholars of Cold War history, in the 1950s and 1960s, the US State Department and the CIA refashioned a weaponized modernist art and literature using them in a struggle for cultural prestige and influence between the communist Soviet Union and its Eastern Bloc satellites on one side and the United States and the nations of Western Europe on the other. As the journalist and author Frances Stoner Saunders shows in her groundbreaking book, The Cultural Cold War, quote, during the height of the Cold War, the US government committed vast resources to a secret program of cultural propaganda in Western Europe. Its mission was to nudge the intelligentsia of Western Europe away from its lingering fascination with Marxism and communism towards a view more accommodating of the American way, unquote. Under the leadership of the poet and assistant secretary of state, Archibald McLeish, a cohort of poets, writers, critics, editors, and scholars, including Charles Olson, Malcolm Cowley, James Laughlin, Robert Lowell, my favorite, and Norman Pearson were recruited by the government to promote modernism at home and abroad. As Kara Nelson points out, the 1950s were a crucial period when what we now know as the modernist canon came into being. But what he does not say, or what he, we did not know for a long time, was that Cold War propaganda played an important role in fashioning the image of modernism. In the immediate post-war era, most Americans still disliked or even despised modernist art. As Greg Barnesfield shows in Cold War Modernists, the CIA founded in 1947 and staffed mainly by Yale and Harvard graduates sought to promote, among other things, American abstract paintings such as Jackson Pollock, Robert Motherwell, William de Cooney, and Mark Rothko as proof of the creativity, the intellectual freedom, and the cultural power of the United States. The same strategy was used to repurpose modernist literature and poetry. Faulkner, for instance, at the time, very few American readers were actually were like Faulkner or some of the more difficult modernist works. But because CIA was involved in advocating this kind of American modern art, and so difficulty, opacity, became a, a propaganda product, you know, machine uh, to push to overseas. And in return, we in the United States, big people became, you know, became fond of, and this is kind of ironic. So, so what I'm sharing today, you know, if I can interject, is really my using myself as an example, caught between two systems of political beliefs, and uh, as far as what literature is or what literature should be, and how I became disoriented in between shuttling back and forth, changing positions, trying to figure out what the hell is going on or what should I believe in that sense. So bear with me. Um, so the CIA, first by advocating the notion that art and literature should be 
autonomous from the practice of daily life, not subject to evaluation by social and political criteria. It then dispenses with the more revolutionary or reactionary political associations that have marked modernism in the public mind in the first part of the century, replacing them with a celebration of the virtues of freedom and the assertion that the individual is sovereign. The very idea that individual is sovereign, for instance, you know, we can talk more about this, um, uh, has huge implications uh, for gun control, for instance, uh, and, and all that. As we know, such an interpretation of modernism promoted during the Cold War was an abrupt departure from the often subversive poetics of Pound, Stein, and their fellow travelers. But it has been the canonical reading since the heyday of new criticism an intentionally depoliticized, decontextualized approach to literature. Ironically, it was an approach that I had learned in China as a gesture of political rebellion, a mark of resistance to ideological control. So this is really the irony. You know? I didn't know in China being apolitical at the time was meaning you know, you're rebellious and being political. But of course, um, if you look at transpacifically across the ocean, the other side, you know, what's happening over there is totally different. It seemed that my transpacific journey in poetry had come to a full circle. If I had started out by running away from politics, I will later realize, only later realize that in pursuing depoliticized reading, as I did in college or as a teenager listening to the VOA, I had unwittingly internalized some of the cultural logic of Cold War propaganda. It seemed that I needed to, as Nietzsche once said, fair learning, meaning unlearn. Remarkably, my unlearning in trans-Pacific poetics and politics was provided, albeit indirectly, by the person who had taught me to read and write, my father. There was also a lesson, the full weight and meaning of which I was able to appreciate only years later, partly because, to quote Nietzsche again, such unlearning requires something for which one has almost to be a cow in any sense, or in any sense, not a modern man, rumination. It means takes time. Uh, about the same time I had, as I chanced upon the VOA radio programs and thus began, began my building's Roman in English language, I also stumbled upon one of my father's secrets, his red notebook. One day, my father showed me a notebook he had kept since he was young. It had a red plastic cover, making it look like Mao's little red book. Inside, he had pasted clippings, old poems and essays he had published under various pseudonyms in newspapers and magazines. His grandfather, my great-grandfather, was a landlord from an exploitative and parasitic class, a factor that doomed my father's future. Attending college, a privilege reserved only for working class children was a dream beyond my father's reach, and he became instead a barefoot doctor, carrying a medicine kit, roaming the countryside to cure sick peasants. A literary aficionado, he did not stop writing a secret he had long kept from everyone, including his family. I found the notebook by accident one day when I, a curious kid, was rummaging through his things. Sharp a little, he got me to promise not to tell anyone, and then he let me read a few short poems. From what I can remember, those tofu-shaped poems were mostly about the virtues of the proletarian revolution. 
the joys of agricultural harvesting and other topics common to communist literature. Despite the formulaic quality of the writing, even my pre-adult adult eye could see that my father's love for literature and desire for creativity were as real as the heartbeats pulsing under his bare skin. In October 2016, my father suddenly passed away after a fall. I was devastated not only by his death, but also by the fact that I did not get there in time to say goodbye. The sheer distance from California to China made it impossible for my speedy return. After I finally got back to my hometown and laid him to rest, I had to clean up his bedroom. Once again, I was rummaging through his things, only this time I knew exactly what I was looking for, his red notebook. After much effort, I successfully located the object. It had already lost its red plastic cover, the pages coming loose at the binding, but those clippings of poems and essays were still there. My attention was especially drawn by those tofu-sized poems, which had, I had once read as a teenager, unschooled in the art of poetry. Reading them now, almost four decades later, I felt the poems jumping out at me with a crude freshness and bittersweet innocence. His debut poem, titled Going to Work, Chugong, was written when my father was 18 years old. Apparently, it is a decent enough poem, for after its initial publication in a small county newspaper, it was reprinted a month later by our district newspaper with a much larger distribution. It reads in my translation, Rise before dawn, return after sundown. More sweat now, greater harvest in autumn. And the companion piece was titled, Adding. If day is not enough at night, if men are not enough at women, if the young are not enough at the old, passion not enough, we must add perseverance. These two poems were first published on June 11, 1958, in the depth of the great leap forward, Da Yuejing. The infamous movement was a dystopian social campaign lasting for three years, aiming to boost China's economy, but in fact ending in disaster with millions of people starved to death. Read against such a historical fact, my father's poems, especially like the following one titled Harvest Celebration may rightly be regarded as propaganda. Quote, when, when grain fills up the barn, joy overflows the hearts of the people. Heavens shaken by the gong and drum, we are celebrating a year of cornucopia. Indeed, the entire period of Chinese revolutionary literature from 1949 to 1976 has often been interpreted as producing formulaic pot boilers that rarely deviate from party lines and only serve politics. Interpreted through the prism of the West, which regards individual free expression as the golden rule for aesthetic production, revolutionary literature may indeed lack aesthetic value. Case in point, in 2016, the year my father passed away, I edited and published the big red book of modern Chinese literature, 
A Northern anthology that includes writings by about 50 Chinese authors. I chose the colorful title in part to pun on Mao's Little Red Book, in part to pay tribute to my father's notebook. The anthology, to my surprise and delight, was reviewed by the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, the Times Literary Supplement, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and others. Among these reviews, there was one that particularly struck a chord, or rather a discord with me, because they made me, once again, reflect upon my own peregrinations on the trans-Pacific route of politics and poetics, the lessons that I have repeatedly had to learn and unlearn. It's the fact of unlearn that I'm most interested in. When I learn something, it's very difficult to unlearn something. And uh, through this, you know, back and forth trans-Pacific journeys, I repeatedly have to unlearn my previous notions. So in his review article, if Mao had been a hermit in the New York Review of Books, Harry Link, a, a professor emeritus of Princeton University, took issues with some of my selections. Link was, in his own word, stunned by my decision to include Mao Zedong in the anthology, Chairman Mao. Although he acknowledged that Mao's actions as a political leader had fateful effects on more human lives than arguably anyone else in history, Link asked how good Mao's poems actually are on strictly aesthetic grounds. In fact, the eminent scholar of Chinese history and literature had an answer ready, as he asserted that, quote, Mao's poems are competent, but not brilliant, unquote. Therefore, he doubted that we will be talking about them today if Mao had been a hermit. What Ling failed, uh, failed to understand was that aesthetics was not the only criterion by which I had made my selections for the anthology in the first place. As I stated in the introduction, the book is above all a search for the soul of modern China. I wanted to choose literary works that, independent of their aesthetic values, have made a large impact on the spiritual, cultural life of 20th century China. In other words, I was interested in what Philip Fisher, a Harvard uh, American scholar, uh, calls the cultural work of literature. In his study of 19th century American popular novels, Fisher argues that the most important cultural work was often done by those genres or representative works that, from a later perspective, say that of 20th century modernism, have seemed weak or lacking in aesthetic values, like Tom, Uncle Tom's Cabin, for instance, one example, tremendously popular in the 19th century, but looking from the aesthetic principles of modernism, it's actually pretty weak work, as Fisher argues. In terms of cultural work, it might be hard to find any literary work that has left a larger, foot, a larger footprint in modern China than Mao's poems and his Analect-style quotations that make up his Little Red Book. Therefore, regardless of what one thinks of how good Mao's poems really are aesthetically, they occupy a unique place in modern Chinese literature. Link blind spot is the notion that literature must be the expression of a free individual, an assumption that dates back to William Wordsworth's definition of poetry as the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Anything short of that will be deemed bad literature or just propaganda. But as I have learned through my experience shuttling between China and America, East and West, 
the belief in literature as an expression of a free individual is as ideologically suspect as Mao's revolutionary shipless. Just like those proletarian poems recovered by Nelson in his book, which once baffled me, Mao's writings, my father's dofu-shaped poems, and many more like them, are not relics from a bygone era. Most of them are records of creative souls struggling, negotiating, and coping with a national dream gone bad. They are testimonials not to the corrosion of literature by politics, but to the power of writing as politics. In a twisted way, we should admit that communism may have done much damage to literature, but at least it takes literature seriously, in fact so seriously, that it wants to control all forms of artistic expression, weeding out the 100 flowers that dare to blossom. Or, in an equally perverted manner, I am reminded what transpired with the CIA and its cultural cold war. As Saunders tells us, the CIA took art very seriously. There may be a really perverse argument, she says, that says the CIA were the best art critics in America in the 50s because they saw the potential power in that kind of art and ran with it. Somewhere, Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. So I'm going to conclude here, although um, I want to say, you know, today we are back in this business of banning books and the TikTok before we ban, you know, guns. And that says a lot, once again, about, you know, what literature can do or what kind of cultural work literature can do. But before I end, uh, before we go to uh, Q&A, um, let me stop sharing right now. Since I began with this, um, you know, this uh, sign on my office door, serve the people, read them verse, and you are my kind of people. So I'm going to read you a piece of verse. Uh, a verse I wrote myself uh, for the people, but it's called, um, let me bring, it works better if I can. I wrote this, um, it's a Christmas carol called Some Observations About America. So uh, I wrote this as a Christmas carol, I think about a year ago. Some Observations About America for Alexis T. Tocqueville. As you know, he was the famous Frenchman who wrote Democracy, uh, in America, my, one of my favorite books, actually, since I wrote about Melville. All right, here it goes. They suck at math, knowing none, double negative is positive. You know, the Americans are bad with math anyway. They always try to put two and two together, never any other combination. They do voodoo, munching an apple a day to keep the doctor at bay. They try to kill time, by shooting the breeze. <laughs> they are clueless. Whenever th something is up, they turn over all stones. They always bark up the wrong tree, knowing not each tree had its own, has its own bark. They are pessimistic, believing a cow out of the barn is never coming back, or water under the bridge isn't still water. They all love to kvetch, but few bother to learn Yiddish. You know, the Yiddish word, correct. <laughs> you all say correct. They always swear on their mother's grave, but forget to tell you if she's still with us. They think it's wrong to compare apples and oranges, 
They fought a pig for wearing lipstick or a wolf dressed in cashmere. They always wonder why the chickens cross the road, as if the animals had no right to do it. When they say, "Be my guest," you better not stay. <laughs> When they tell you this is just between me, you should ask, "And who else?" <laughs> they suck in business, believing a penny saved is a penny earned, while Chinaman makes a dollar out of fifteen cents. For those who know the reference, right?、Uh, The hidden Chinese, a China makes a dollar out of fifteen cents. They think one stone for two birds is a steal, or a nest egg a sweet deal. Their bull market is full of bull. Corner market rarely stands at the corner, and the flea market doesn't give you fleas. When the going goes tough, the tough blames China or Mexico. They call a spade a spade, but not a lie a lie. They boo a socialist. But vote for a rapist. Their politicians have no bones, but plenty of bone spurs. They pay a prostitute to open her mouth and then pay her more to keep it shut. They can hear Supreme Court Justice flushing the toilet, not the screams of his rape victim. Only in America, Jew boys play Nazi, deporting refugees, dubbing it Miller time. Only in America. A virus that is a hoax can actually kill. They always say "God bless America," forgetting God is an anagram of dog, and America just another another seven-letter word like <laughs> asshole. I'm sorry, it's maybe a little bit too much, but、uh, okay. So that's it.、Um, oh, welcome! Any comments or questions? And、uh, you know, so this is the kind of dog I write、um, most of the time. <laughs> I, I think you've been influenced by Trump. I, I、oh, think、yes. I think the Trump era has made us all a, a little bit. I don't know, stressed、uh, about the future of things that we cherish, or、uh, just being able to make those choices.、Um, I guess we share the disorientation by the Trump, the rise of the Trump.、Uh, I. I I I agree with. You know, I'm in the same generation as、uh, as Dr. Huang, so I think、uh, Trump destroys our, from my perspective, idealism of of America of our youth. Right.、Uh, I see a hand. So,、uh, Jonathan.、Um, yes.、Uh, just wanted to point out,、uh, among other things, that、uh, Jew boy is derogatory. And you should you should avoid using that or similar terms.、Um, Thank you. Yes. No, I do understand because、um, I think comedy is very difficult、uh, in America, and, and comedy is also you know it's very difficult to. I, I was reading recently there's a controversy involving、uh, Dalai Lama. You know, I don't know guys if you're following up. And he was、uh, in India, right? He was talking to this、uh, Indian boy, and、uh, so what he said was to the boy, you know, I think he kissed him and then said, "Suck my tongue." And now, actually, boy, if you tell us more, since you studied Tibetan, and yeah, it was like out, you know, put out your tongue or something to that effect,、uh, but but it was taken very badly. Right. It was also, also right. Yes. Thank also, you, Jonathan. Thank you. Also. also Uh, comparing Jews to Nazis is is problematic. So rewrite your list. 
Thank you for pointing that out. Like, well, once again, like I said, I, I totally understand, you know, so this is what um, um, haiku or what I call loku mm -hmm. is doing in a sense. Uh, haiku initially, you know, uh, uh, Japanese, uh, you know, uh, classical poetry actually mm -hmm. borrowed from Chinese. One essence of haiku is actually mockery, including especially self-mockery. And there's, it's the humor aspect of this. Um, sometimes it intentionally derogative because the reality is trying to, it, it, the poetry is trying to mock is too dark. And mm. uh, that's part of the reason, like decorum is never part of, you know, um, uh, uh, haiku. Um, if you get, I, I totally take your point, Jonathan. Well, thank you. Thank for, you. you know, especially in New York. I understand totally. Yes. Well, I'll, I'll just say something. Uh, Dr. Huang does call Chinese Chinamen, which is also considered very, very derogatory today and politically incorrect. Absolutely, uh, yes. You know, in every sense. Uh, and, and he's also, I think, uh, I don't think he's advancing any of the stereotypes that are put in, in what he calls his doggerel. It's just really the, the, I mean, I see it as the opposite, holding up cultural, um, the kinds of cultural lies really that that have pervaded the trump era where you know it's hard to tell truth anymore and with ai being able to manipulate images and sounds it's it's very uh, i find it a very disturbing universe uh, in mm -hmm. which maybe poetry is the only uh true voice uh because it doesn't yes. speak directly and it, mm -hmm. it seeks to um it seeks to unfold in what what you've called the trans-Pacific uh, dimension or the in-between of the silences or uh, that poetry is a discourse that admits it can't say what it wants to say in, in, in a way. So, um, yes, I actually I took a lot of slack for using the word Chinaman uh, in <laughs> my previous books. Uh, I, I did it for two reasons. One is, you know, uh, Chinaman started out as a neutral term, as you know, in the 19th century. Only when <clears throat> anti-Chinese sentiment rose, the, the term became a negative. So that's the historical fact. And the other is, you know, I'm, much of my writing or publications, you know, I, I have always this kind of tongue-in-cheek stance that trying to be subversive by appropriating uh you know, parody, in other words. Um, so for all the, 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 the bad things, let's say, Trump era has done to this country or the world, I think for America, the worst thing is actually he killed comedy or, or, or let's say, White House correspondent dinner, right? We all know his run, presidential run, started out because he was made fun of and that really hurt his ego because Obama cracked a joke at him. And that started out his whole presidential run. And eventually he killed uh, White House correspondent Dinham. So given the story I just, stories I told today, for instance, for my, you know, like uh, FOB uh, perspective, the greatest thing about American culture is really this White House correspondent Dinham. Imagine that a president will invite a top comedian, you know, treat him well as a guest, and then the comedian will make fun of at him while he's standing right there. Um, it's just unthinkable, right? Um, 
you know, there are a lot of truths, half truths, and jokes, you know, told. And you may or may not like what has been said, you know, a, a, by the comedian. But the fact they can all be can all be there, and uh, you know, and and um, make fun of each other or whatever. Um, and you see, Trump cannot stand that, um, and, and that says a lot about. You know, uh, so so I'm from you know for for us like working in literature and uh, cultural studies and in all other field intellectual fields, um, that 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 space uh, that allows different voices and appropriation and counter appropriation, mockery and counter mockery, uh, I, I find it to be really important. Uh, I was wondering, Professor Huang, thank thank you for that really beautifully written piece that you delivered to us. Um, sorry, my internet was going in and out. But um, I, I think I understood all the references that you had in the poem and that may seem um, offensive or not. But I, I think you're pointing to kind of the hypocrisy of what's going on right now in America using different claim proclaiming diversity in some spaces, but then using that kind of as a cudgel to hurt other people. So I think I did understand that. I wanted to ask, I thought it was so interesting that as someone who had just come to America, you found this kind of like resonance with modernist poets who are number one, difficult to understand. Um, and second of all, like very politically. I remember in graduate school, I was learning a lot about Ezra Pound and, you know, the ABCs of reading, the Enneagramic method. And as a Chinese American, I was so stuck on the Fenelosa passages about, you know, a lot of misconceptions, right? Um, so Pound is already a difficult figure politically, but the part where, um, he kind of misinterprets Fenelosa maybe about how Chinese people are so wonderful and they thought of these ideas, um, but then the color red with, um, do you know, in the passage of cherry, flamingo, and you know, as a student, I was like, this is ridiculous. Um, but of course, there's a lot of uh, interest to it, and I ended up writing about it. I was just wondering, what's your take on a lot of this Fenelosa, this kind of quacky sinology? Um, and how you've worked with that. Right. Um, well, certainly uh, this kind of misreading, right? Uh, misreading happens. Uh, uh, poetry is misreading, of course. It's always like, you know, we use metaphor. Like my love is like a red, red rose. Uh, you know, um, conceptually, it's, it's, uh, it's cheating, uh, deception. So, so um, you compare one thing to another. It means you can't really describe that thing. So if you look at that way, uh, error or errancy going around, going around and around and around. Uh, and that's it. So Pound, Fenelosa, that, that tradition, the American tradition of looking at China that way, um, you know, since I wrote about Charlie Chan, and it's, you be sure remember they are contemporaneous. So while Charlie Chan was popular, as a parent was popular as well. So we are talking about high and low in American culture, looking at you know, across the ocean in a totally different way, right? People eat chop suey and making fun of Chinese while they go to class, you know, go to Harvard, Yale, and study at the pound and the Fenelosa. So that's kind of very ironic, right? So I'm not saying there's no way to 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 be correct or, or incorrect when it comes to study uh, the other culture or the other language. But of course, um, the best way to understand language is to learn it, actually, right? Without mis any misunderstanding. But then you have to go native in that sense. So, so, so I understand the way I, I think my answer to your question is, uh, or rather comment 
is that I see the use of translation, uh, especially today, chat GPT. You know, my department has like two emergency meetings already about chat GPT, people using, especially people with uh, the English not as a first language. This is like, uh, it's a calculator for mathematics class, right? You know, it's, it does, does magic. So, so in that sense, we see uh, translation not as important anymore, in a sense. But as we know, translation is extremely important. So, so I think in, in that sense of what is the um, error? Uh, uh, I think I one time I wrote an article called "The Poetics of Error: The Mis Misreading, uh, Poetics of Misrecognition," and and I want to teach a class called "Pounds um, Error," you know, uh, error as a mistake. Uh, when I was a uh, assistant professor at Harvard, and uh, the chair called me and said, "You can't teach that class." You know why? Because because we don't want you to sound as if we are celebrating mistakes. You know, pounds error. Because we, uh, I think the the party line was we have universities that are you know built and uh, and uh, you know to teach students how to understand correctly. Uh, but I'm a poet, right? You know, I'm a doctoral writer. And I, I understand what's interesting is always the slippage, right? Um, like, like Jonathan just took me to task about the use of that. And, uh, of course, you know, the irony, the differences, um, of understanding, reacting to this term, there's no one way of, of saying, you know, what is correct or incorrect. And only in a certain context, uh, that we, we can agree or not agree, you know, what is the correct, correct way. So, so like I just, um, told, uh, you know, um, Professor, um, Tom earlier and that, um, when we chatted before the lecture that I'm now, you know, studying, uh, kind of classical or pre-classical Chinese literature. And, um, and over there, for instance, um, I'm losing my thought a little bit, uh, but so I'm, I'm sorry. And by the way, one of my students has a question when you're, mm. when you're finished with this answer. Well, why don't let, let us, um, um, have that question first. Maybe I pick up my thought. When I... Hi, good afternoon, yes. Professor Huang. It's, uh, it's Brandon Gonzalez from John Jay. And I don't have a question. I have more of a um, statement to add. When I was, when you were reading from your father's poem, adding what clicked to me was the word ontology. And the definition of ontology, as you know, is the nature of reality. And so, you know, everybody, excuse me, Everyone was chiming in on references to the Trump era. And will we also sometimes forget to realize that one, America is sometimes wrong. Two, um, Trump showed how showed us how the world works and how the world operates. And it is indeed, it's it's race, it's you know, it's racist, it's racism. And so I guess what I'm trying to connect is that you know, your mockery. And your poem is, I wouldn't necessarily call it mockery because it opened my eyes to realize that, you know, that there's flaws in the system and we should understand that there's truth behind perceptions, even though there's only one reality. Well, thank you. Thank you. I think it's a very, that's a very insightful comment, certainly. Yeah. Well, maybe you'd like to tell the story about how you got your visa. Oh, yeah. 
And then well, I, have a, I have a question. If no okay. That's, so, that's the story that... So, uh, as I explained, you know, in my uh, talk earlier, that when Tiananmen Square, June 4th, you know, broke out a tragedy, um, I was a sophomore uh, at Peking University, and that's when I decided, you know, I'm going to get out, you know, no matter what, uh, when I graduate. And I did. Uh, so the, the last year, um, and people often ask me nowadays when I, you know, tell my story, how I, you know, left Beijing and landed in Tuscaloosa, like, why the hell Tuscaloosa? Like, of all the places, why, you know? <laughs> At the time, first of all, I have no idea that, you know, there are differences between, say, Alabama and New York. And I mean, the same way the Americans, you know, if you have never been to China, you will say, you know, uh, Qinghai or Shanghai, uh, is there any difference in that province and this province? They're all China anyway. But of course, and when you land there, you will know there's a huge difference between Tuscaloosa and Manhattan. But at the time, I had no clue. So I was just desperate to get out. So in my senior year, I went to um, a, a university library, uh, Peking University, and I took down Peterson's Guide in a blue-covered, I still remember vividly, it's blue-covered Peterson's Guide to U.S. Colleges and Universities. And lo and behold, Alabama is the first state, you know, in that book. And so I started, I never got to Vermont. I, I think I got as far as Michigan and that I got enough information about enough schools that I can apply to. That's actually how I ended up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. It starts with A. But anyway, so, but to get there, I still had to jump through certain, you know, hoops. For instance, getting a visa. I was fortunate to get a full scholarship uh, from University of Alabama. But even in the full scholarship, uh, that year, 1991, the success rate of getting a U.S. visa from the U.S. consulate is about one-third. So even if with full scholarship, only one-third of students will be able to get the visa because there's a U.S. policy that you cannot show immigration intent, that your purpose is just to study, and you will return to China when you're done. But the United States, of course, they knew. Nobody in their same mind will plan to go there, study, and return to China because my generation of students were planning to just get out, leave, especially after, you know, uh, June, uh, June 4th. So anyway, so we had to do this dance, a performance in front of the visa officer to, to show that we are genuinely serious about returning to China. So, but anyway, to make the long story short. So that morning, I got up at two um, from my, at my dorm. And I rode my bike for two hours to go across Beijing to get to the U.S. consulate in Beijing. So I got there too at by four o'clock and I was number two. There's another guy there out from out of town because in those years, there's no appointment. You just need a standing line. And they only process visa applications for half a day. By noon, they close. So if you cannot get in that morning, you have to come back the next day. That's why I got up so early. So by eight o'clock, there are about 200 students, you know, 200 people lining up already. I was lucky to be number two. And there were five windows on uh, that process. Uh, it's like DMV, you know, different windows. And uh, you're turning your material and then you wait to be called. To, and uh, I learned that window number four was the killer. The bastard turned down so many applications. And, you know, I mean, different clerks have different personality. And some of them are really bitchy. You know, some of them really bad and nasty. Some of them are kind. So many people have been rejected so many times. We have kind of folk wisdom, kind of through gossip. Window number four is the killer. 
So I was waiting and I prayed and prayed, like, please, no number four, please. And of course, you know what? We know number four. Like, oh shit. <laughs> so I got there. And the guy I still remember was a young Korean American with a polo shirt. And um, I was wearing intentionally, you know, Peking University t shirt. And I was pushing my chest against the window, not to flop my boobs, but, but to show Peking University. Because I knew, we, we knew that because during the student protests and the crackdown, my university suffered the, the, the heaviest casualty. And the U.S. government was very sympathetic with picking university students. So basically, I was saying, like, look at me, dude, look at my shirt, you know, I'm from Peking University. But he wasn't looking at me. And uh, so he flipped through my material transcript and it said, um, like, uh, what do you want? Why do you want to go to the United States? And I was so earnest, uh, you know, I said, I want to study poetry. And he said, uh, can you name any poets? Of course, T.S. Eliot, Walt Whitman. And then he said, do you remember any titles? And of course, Song of Myself, The Wasteland, Skunk Hour. And then he came. That's the killer question. He said, uh, do you happen to remember any of the poems? Like, oh, yay. <laughs> I just spent like three months doing my senior thesis on the different versions of Skunk Hour by Robert Lowell. So I knew every word inside out, even the variations. So I was able to recite the poem till to the middle, say, you know, for those who remember the skunk hour, oh, no love, careless love, you know, uh, I myself, the hell, nobody's here. Nobody's here. I have like 200 people standing behind me. So that's when he realized the irony. He said, okay, that's good enough. Here's your visa. You know, <laughs> so true. if I were not able to recite and like, memorize, I wouldn't be speaking to you today in some ways, I guess, you know, that's the one use of poetry that if you memorize it. Yeah, that was used. Okay, we have some hands up. Chris Kwok, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question? Sure. Thank you so much, Professor Huang, uh, for sharing your story and, you know, sort of coming from where you were, you've explained sort of the political and cultural milieu from which you came and you mentioned uh, you know, the use of Chinaman and then teaching Asian American literature and studies here at UCSB. I'm wondering, you know, uh, what, if any, uh, you know, how do you consider the Asian American movement and the Asian American literature that came out of it? What what wisdom did it impart, you know, sort of to the to to your study or is it lacking it uh, even? I'm, I'm not assuming there is wisdom. So I want to pose that question to you. Oh, no, that was, uh, you know, eye-opener for me, you know, coming from old China, and China always has this kind of assumption, like, you know, Chinese Americans, they're like lost kids, like, they always will return. Only when you're here, you know, that's not the case, because uh, Asian Chinese Americans are Americans, not necessarily, you know, Chinese. So the idea of root, but on the other hand, for instance, I just wrote this book uh, on Anime Wong, uh, it's coming out in August. And for her generation, for instance, and of course, we're talking about different generations. Um, you want to stay? You're welcome to stay. Um, it is 1.30. Yeah. Anyway, so so I think um, uh, uh, the 60s and the 70s generation, and, and that's how, you know, I learned a great deal, honestly. I, I continue to learn, basically, from the, the Asian-American experience. Because for me, I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm Chinese and American. 
uh, not necessarily Chinese American. I'm still in the becoming that way. So I learned a great deal, for instance, with the Charlie Chan book. Um, um, I actually spent a long time talking to Frank Chin, actually. He was very angry at me for, for writing this book. If you listen to the NPR on point, he, you know, he was, had a, he was very angry at me. And I, I, we were taking calls, live calls, uh, you know, on, on point. And I was able to hear his curse words, you know, but, but the radio calls were muted, were bleep it, right? And, uh, later on, I went to LA and visited him and I, we had a long conversation. I bought him dinner and everything. And I still have great respect for him, despite the fact he was such a controversial figure, even for Chinese Americans scholars. And, uh, you know, they call him all sorts of names. Uh, so I'm very humbled by that experience, by encounter with the Chinese American historical experience. That's why I, you know, I've written this trilogy because I, I really want to study and learn and, uh, and how I can contribute to this kind of a long cultural legacy. Because uh, we all, you know, contribute to this great body of American culture, but it's actually, you know, it consists of many, many different parts, and nobody can claim. Uh, uh, and you know, I'm I'm glad you mentioned Frank Chin because he was one of the formative writers when I read him when I was in high school. Uh, and he's angry, and but that's his passion. But also, I would say that within sort of contemporary Asian American sort of movement or literature, Frank Chin has literally been written out or written out in memory, you know, because of his sort of, uh, he was not PC, even for the movement. So I find that sort of problematic within the Asian American movement. But Once again, we, we kind of have to, we often cannot make room for this kind of provocative, or sometimes purposeful uh, provocation performance. Some of his anger is actually performed, performative. Mm -hmm. And that... Uh, I guess the idea of PC. So, I mean, my talk today is really about what is PC, right? You know, or what is PC in China or what is PC in the United States and how this, you know, this concept changes over time in relation to aesthetics and, and, and the literature. And so that's, that's why I'm so kind of caught up in all these, you know, different orientations and, and how, how difficult it is to see clearly uh, what is at stake sometimes because of uh, the, the different kind of milieu, you know, we are in, right? All right. So I have a question. Um, I think in some ironic way, after your own, after you revealed your own so-called doggerel, that the questions you posed in, in this newest book are, are very kind of apropos of all of these initiatives, at least certainly at CUNY, uh, about whose English is English? You know, who has the right to speak English? Whose English is the good English? Uh, or, you know, it was posed a long time ago by Fanon, you know, is Creole language or, you know, is it not language? Is it respectable language or not? And so I, I think uh, one of the um, things that your book makes very clear is, is the question of whose language is the poet speaking? You know, is the poet speaking as an aesthetic I, that lyrical imaginary I that is all eyes? Or what who what's the voice of the poet? So that's 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 my question to you. I, I think uh, you you pose many different answers, but you know, and you've written so much on John Yao's poetry, which uh you know, w which has been discussed as destroying the lyrical eye 
So would you like to comment a little bit on the voice oh, of the poet in yes. this, this world of misinformation and misinformation and politicized prose? Like right. Uh, well, thank you. Yes. Oh, I mean, um, so I think the the language in which I speak or the kind of poetry that I write um, is translation needs. Okay. So translation needs is like a bad word, right? You know, because if something sounds like a translation, then it's, it ain't good because it has to be, you know, um, uh, uh, transparent. So if you're reading a book of Chinese novel right now, <clears throat> and if it reads like a translation, then we will say the translation is not good because it has to sound like English. And from the poetic perspective or even cultural poetics, you know, politics, um, translation needs actually preserves, you know, it's not the end product. It, it actually brings, uh, so, so in other words, Maxim Kingston, for instance, the, the last sentence of Maxim Kingston's Woman Warriors, it translated well. And I always insist that whatever translated well is not swell, uh, because, because a good translation hides its origin. And, and to me, uh, it's, it's just not good enough. And so I, it's in that sense, for instance, um, let me use an example. Uh, Dalai Lama, once again, he actually said, you know, Dalai Lama stud, started learning English when he was 38. So his English is somewhat broken. I wouldn't say Charlie Chanish, you know, like a Charlie Chan, but he's better. But Dalai Lama actually said he he's totally aware of the fact he does not speak good English. And he likes the fact he does not speak good English because he said, he said, uh, the mistakes I make sometimes actually will become laughable, actually provocative, and will provoke people to, to think differently. Or So there's no perfect communication, in other words. So once again, uh, I'm going back to the earlier question about mistakes. Uh, you know, what is the misconception and what is the essence of misconception? So in that sense, I would say, Rather than say looking for the speaker's voice, you know whose voice it is, uh, language really speaks for itself, right? The material. I'm more kind of materialist in a sense, not in a kind of more idealistic sense, looking for a poet's voice. But but you see that, for instance, the doggerel I just wrote, piece of doggerel I wrote, it's not really about me, right? It's, it's that I'm appropriating, you know, uh, uh, English proverbs or, or cliches. It's the material. Uh, because that's really the essence of haiku. In haiku, as you know, you can, the I never appears. The, the real haiku, the speaker is absent. It's always there's this pure, you know, world out there that, that is being described. Uh, so, so I'm, I'm practicing more, uh, in that way. So in that sense, I see, uh, mistranslations or, or imperfect translate. For instance, when I, my daughter, who's now, you know, almost 23, but when Isabel was growing up, I kept a notebook because when she was switching from Chinese to English, and of course, many mistakes she will make and everything, I kept a notebook. And I always very fond of that so-called um, when she, her English is not, you know, fluent yet, and she's mingling Chinese and English, this kind of Chinglish. Uh, those were really fascinating things. For instance, I gave me one example. For instance, she one time she said, uh, don't pee pee me off, you know. Don't piss me off, but peeping me off, kind of teenage. And of course, peeping me off is not good enough English, right? 
but that's almost like perfect English, right? Uh, if you know what I mean. And she will say, it's two o'clock far away from here, you know, and things like that. I mean, this childish, but on the other hand, I think this is also kind of bilingualism will do to you. And so I always kind of treasure uh, that kind of imperfect uh, or broken English. And that's part of the reason I like Charlie Chan, for instance, despite the fact Asian Americans, most Asian Americans who hate him. But but once again, for poetic reasons and uh, you know for reasons I I just explained, um, I, I think you know uh, language as as material will make poetry for you rather than say what you're trying to express. I I I was led to understand that that's really wonderful. I was led to understand that um, like Asians in Asia love Charlie Chan, so you can't see a Charlie Chan, and I find this. A big, I find this real, I mean, I have some ideas of why that is, because I also love Charlie Chan. Mm. Despite the fact that he was played by a white actor, like in yellow face, you could say, and that's politically incorrect. And despite the, what you know, the broken English aphorisms. Um, well, that's, that's exactly why, if I, if I may, you know, that's I think Jonathan's, for instance, I, I think Jonathan's response to my dog was very typical kind of very, you know, right on point in the sense, when I was writing Charlie Chan book and I was going around the country, of course I understand, like people, Frank Ching was very angry with me because if you are growing up in the 50s, 60s in America and you hear Ching Chong Chinaman sitting on the fence and you grow up and your neighborhood kids come to you, do a Charlie Chan on you, your gut reaction, you will never like aesthetically Charlie Chan. Whereas from someone like me or people in Asia, who never really experienced like the street, you know, racism and everything. It's different kind of bodily experience. So there's no, you know, one intellectually correct way of understanding Charlie Chan. It's really the, it's just the same way Jonathan, you know, got reaction to Blue Boy. There's no way of rationalize it. And for me, it's okay because, you know, uh, uh, so my roommate called me Chinaman, you know, one day, you know, he said, I, I say, I swear to God, I don't, I didn't eat your ice cream. And he said, well, you're a Chinaman, you know, swearing doesn't make any sense because they don't believe in God. It was a joke, of course. But then, you know, my re reaction to the word Chinaman will be totally different, say, Chris's reaction, you know, to, to the word Chinaman. There's no, uh, so the body speaks, right? You know, it's not always our brain. Um, I, I've introduced a colleague of mine here, Veronica. Uh, right, Veronica, yes, she, hi. She's going to, she's making a, a Chinese uh, American course, and she's studying Chinese, so I think that oh, she, wow. yeah, that's, very, <laughs> that's Veronica, and how are you? Okay. Thank you very much for this. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh. Yeah. So I actually just got accepted into a program at the East West Center in Honolulu. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah so I'm very excited because it's actually really focusing on this area of Chinese um, uh -huh. transatlantic stuff, so Right. Well, I'm envious. Oh, you are, so that's would that be your summer or? Uh, just only. Uh, I think it's three weeks in July, but two years in a row. Oh boy! So July toy. Oh my boy! Yeah. So toy, we need to talk because maybe next year you'll come with me. Mm. We'll talk. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So this is new work that I'm doing, and uh, just very novice at it. So, yeah, it's a lot of work, but very very exciting. Oh, yeah. great. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think I think there's going to be more Asian studies at, at John Jay. Um, I'm hoping. It's, um, we've, we've agitated politically for years for an Asian-American line, mm-hmm. and we're not going to get it. Uh, but but, but I think maybe, that I, maybe, the, maybe the back doorway when students, uh, we're creating this global Asian minor. Yep. And people like Veronica and and, and, and Ru and I and, and Yanni were making new courses. Mm-hmm. And if students register for them, obviously, you know, that may change. So Yeah. And I actually, um, in our department, um, the first course I'm doing is Asian American. Um, but the second one I'm going to put forth is basically Asian literature in translation, mm-hmm. which, again, this is like new work for me in a big stretch. And I know Toy is not a huge fan of translation, but I think it'd be a, a real asset to the college. I am. I'm a translator, but but I don't translate Chinese. So I think it's great. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I have, um, I'm an adjunct in Asian American studies at Hunter, which has probably the largest number of students in Asian American studies. But unlike the UCs uh, at CUNY, there's been no strong institutionalization of the Asian American lines, uh, hence why I'm, an, uh, why I'm an adjunct. But I have a student from John Jay uh, that cross, you know, sort of register. So that's one way of doing it. But um, I thought uh, Hunter had a really good program. We do. We have an excellent program. It just probably doesn't have the same institutionalization that it's had in the West Coast at UC Berkeley, UC LA, which then, of course, went to all the other UCs and the Cal States, which Professor Huang, I think, is well aware. Is that that, that because UC, uh, Dr. Huang, is full of Asians? Mm -hmm. Uh, The students were more radical and they struck struck more ferociously and they won more institutionally. the sheer uh, numbers bigger battles are earlier on. So, yeah. yeah. I mean. So I think at John Jay, we do see an increase in the number of students coming from Asian backgrounds. So I, I think it'll push it in the right direction as we go forward. Mm-hmm. It's only about 12%. How, what percent of Asians make up UC? Do you know, Dr. Huang? Not UC in general. Like UCLA, Berkeley, well, 45% or something. Yeah. UC Santa Barbara, UCSB, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, maybe because the location we're only like 14%. So it's the, it's the whitest. Because it's so expensive and, you know, in yeah. Santa Barbara and everything. It's the whitest. But, but they got you. But that's amazing. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, did you go there? Why did you go there? Uh, was it any particular reason? Well, I started out in Alabama as A. I went to Buffalo as B. Cambridge is C, so I'm stuck with C, so California. Yeah. That's okay. That's a good place to be stuck. Oh, my God. I, oh, my God. If only I could get stuck there. <laughs> There's no C in New York. Um, but it was Cornell. <gasps> Cornell. Well, for a while, I was looking. It's like, hmm, where is my D? Denver or, you know, <laughs> Delaware? But actually, um, well, the real reason was, uh, once again, going back to my daughter, Isabel, and she was born in Boston and she had asthma at the time. And long winter was very bad for her. So I, I need a warmer climate. And that's the real reason I came to the West Coast. Yeah. But the seas are the poetic reason. Oh, yeah. I was stuck. <laughs> stuck here. Since you believe in, in those things. Um, well, sort of. That's the, you know, yeah. But 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 it is incredible about China, even communist China, the the long tradition of Chinese culture and the value that poetry was always the supreme mm-hmm. achievement. It's it's not surprising 
that poetry sh should still be important and should be a made a political instrument. It's it's hardly surprising. Well, here too, you're just not aware of it. No, I, the way I, I, poetry I, works on our mind and billboards, um, political slogans, and uh, they're all poems. You know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I I can accept that. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like yeah. to see more of my my mentality up there, but it's not going to happen. Uh, this to me, it, it is poetry. I mean, the build a wall, for instance, uh, slogan is is a it's a poem. It's a it's a short haiku, imagistic poem. You know. No, advertisements well, often, yeah, they are. Well, I mean, I don't know if you know how it came about, right? Uh, Trump's slogan, build a wall, was because when he first started running, his handlers knew this guy cannot remember anything. And we need to feed him a line, easy to remem remember. Actually, it's a true story. Mm -hmm. So so he, he tried it and it worked. And so he stuck with the policy. Mm -hmm. It was not his priority as a policy. It was a poetic line that easy for him to memorize. Mm -hmm. And so that's always I, how you know, I tell my students, poetry is important. How did because... you know that? How did you know that? I you... actually knew that too. I, yeah. don't, I don't know where I read it, but. Right. It's a true story. Uh, I, it's easy to understand as well. Yeah. It makes sense, you know. Yeah. And it just took off. And so he yeah. stuck with it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He, so, so when he was like throwing out, he was throwing out all these different lines and that's the one that got the biggest reaction. Right. And yeah. so he just stayed with it. Yeah, this is madman. I mean, this Madison, you know, square, you know, this is, uh, yeah, advertisement, really. How, what, what works and uh, it's, yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. I have a question. Uh, so I, uh, I saw a lot of, you publish a lot of anthologies and studies, translation work. Do you have your, or do you have plan to publish your own, uh, in Chinese or English? My own, uh, poet, poetic. Look. Oh, poetry and all that. Yeah, I, I once um, published a, uh, a small volume of Doggerel, 2005, um, called the Cribs. Cribs, once again, is imperfect translation, you know, crib sheets, and uh, it's about plagiarism as well and all of that. So being playful with that. And I'm still working on like a smaller a collection, like the, the piece I read today, you know, Summer Translation is like a piece in that kind of American Doggerel, what I, what I would like to call. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of stuck in this. If I, this is once again, that kind of experience, right? I, I started out, you know, uh, in China. And if I were to write Chinese poetry today, I'm like, I don't know, moody, melancholic, sentimental. But if I write in English, I can't help it. I have to be like, you know, making fun of something ironic. And that's really what bilingualism can do to you. Yeah. You study on your mother tongue, you're really serious and sentimental and all that. And then when you flip to the other language and now you can, you cannot be in just one place and you totally understand the irony from as an outsider, then, then I can't help it being ironic. And so, so yeah, so to answer your question, yes, I, I do have plans. I just, yes. Thank you. Uh, your most recent book is like, you know, talk about Ezra Pound and the Chinese characters, you know, that the radicals that march through. And then you say people should listen to old Ez, you know, that's just so American. And, <laughs> and that is your American voice that is not Chinese for sure. But I, I, I really love that. The, the mix, the roping of the, the what's considered high speech, the scholarly and the. Thank you. 
street speech because you you gave us a choice in the beginning you said do you want my scholarly book or my cultural book and we all said okay we'll take your scholarly book but it's charming in the way that it's both i think more than the other two i i thank you and, and also the way you know you tell your personal uh, entrance into poetry and and your father's little red book i mean that's astonishing thanks um but you know chinese culture even i'm i'm american born first generation uh, my father used to tell me all these stories about the monkey king you know that that mm. famous epic and then of course um i'm going to teach this book american born chinese by by uh jean yang uh, yes. where where you know a big component of that book is is that is that myth and it seems to be i mean that's the thing that that i find intriguing you know i'm not i'm an american and you know but my my father you know told me those same stories as probably children in china heard it mm -hmm. you know from their parents so there's something about a global there's something about global globalization in the age of immigration mm -hmm. that's oh sure that's kind of really fascinating yeah i mean storytelling so that's the long running debate between say maxim kingston and frank ching right over whether myths are changeable right so Frank Ching accused Maxim Kingston of, of forging, you know, uh, of forgery, of making up uh, or changes the Chinese uh, mythological stories. And Frank Ching said, you can't change, you know, cultural myths because they are cultural, belong to the community. And Kingston said, well, you know, people are in the new world. So we have, you know, we need to invent new stories and variations. Um, I wouldn't say who is right or who is wrong in the sense of, you know, coming from China, even I heard different versions of, you know, uh, different uh, stories, depending who is telling, right? My grandmother used to tell me stories out of Chinese myths and the versions I've never heard of, you know, anywhere else. And uh, so when I started reading, like, grandma, where did you get that story, you know? And maybe she made it up herself or maybe she heard it from, you know, her grandmother or something. Uh, so it's just different versions, um, you know, changing. And uh, that's... Kind of uh, once again, that's you know that's why I like these kind of imperfect translations that people caught in between, and uh, you know so. Yeah, yeah but, but I, think, I think both are legitimate. You know, you can have the the iconic version, and then huh? the variations are just the living version of that. You know, it's just agree. Well, what's the point of of, of a masterpiece if, if it's not looked at looked upon? In, in other contexts with different eyes and you know there it can't there can't help but be a kind of corruption of any so-called like original meaning you know for for the i think frank was a third generation you know chinese american disconnected from china truly but perhaps his sort of um absolutism was due to that you know sort of reverence of it uh, but, you know, today it's only Maxine Hong Kingston who has a PBS documentary about her life and her work. And Frank Chin doesn't have that. So we yeah. kind of know within the American context who won and sort of there are other messages within Maxine Hong Kingston, which are more assimilationist, which Frank was very angry about uh, that, you know, he sort of railed against. Um, but, you know. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, who who won? Uh, the victor doesn't know, doesn't always mean the victor like 
you know, when my daughter was depressed after Trump's election, later on, my lesson is like, see, if he had not won, he would not have gotten into all this trouble now. <laughs> we'll never look into his taxes anymore, you know, but so that's a lesson. We don't know exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, I, I still respect Frank Ching's work. Uh, he's, I think he's a really great prose writer. And I, I definitely enjoy his, you know, provocation. Uh, I don't think everything he's, he's said or done is totally kind of, you know, total, like 100% earnestness and, you know, serious. There's a lot of performance in it. And, uh, and who doesn't, right? So if we acknowledge that, then we will have to re-examine his legacy in some way. And I definitely, despite, you know, he did not, he hated my Charlie Chan book, um, I, I still have a great, you know, I still have a lot of respect for, for his work. Certainly. Well, he put, he put Asian American studies and the whole idea that that was valid on the map. Right. I mean, so there's, you know, his legacy, he may be the loser, but, you know, in the winner-loser, there's two, and the legacy isn't just the winners. Yeah, I, Chris definitely is right, for instance, during the NPR interview, and uh, he will grill me and say, like, do you know Guang Gong? Like, you know, like, <laughs> like, Frank, are you kidding? Like, you know, I was born in China, Guang Gong is everywhere. Like you're interrogating me about my knowledge of China, but I can I I know why you know because I could be one of those kids, new kids who who's just trying to leave Chinese culture. It's it's possible, you know. But I mean, I I would pose this was that for anyone that grew up in China of that era, calls uh, Mao's Cultural Revolution truly disconnected the whole of mainland China from traditional Chinese culture in many many ways. Uh, well, that's, again. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But if you actually on the ground, and that's again the resilience of culture, right? Um, Maoism or communism may change a lot of Chinese ways, but daily life still, like I'm from Wenzhou, for instance, yeah. even the worst years of cultural revolution, my folks are still doing business on the ground. And that's why capitalism first grew after Mao in Wenzhou. There's a reason for it. So there's, you know, that's um, uh, again, you know, Veronica and others may study more in terms of what actually happened on the ground. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I actually, um, I lived in Shanghai for a year. So mm. that influenced a lot of what I'm doing now. Mm. And so part of the program I was in, I traveled around and lectured in different parts of the country and really got all these very different perspectives. Mm. So it was, you know, it's fantastic. And you know, now as I'm looking through this with like Mao not being something that people talked a lot about um, and just starting to do the research on my own now, it's it's very interesting listening to you talk about your parents. And the only um, connection that I really had was one of my colleagues at the university. Um, his parents were also, you know, relatively affluent. And so he was sent to work in the field somewhere and eventually somehow circled around to becoming an academic. And so it was this, you know, really interesting path that he had. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Professor Huang um, lived, uh, got me as an ABC, but my secret is that my parents were sent down uh, during the Cultural Revolution, and I was actually born uh, in the place they were sent down to, uh, in Guizhou, which was, you know, the hinterland of yeah. yeah. China, right? So, um, so, and we, we were sent down because we had been previously wealthy and English-speaking and educated and things like that. And we came out of China in 1976 
uh, having gone through um, re-education camp, uh, being sent down. And then we came through Hong Kong because my, my dad had relatives. Uh, so the whole scope of history is, of course, very interesting and personal to me as well. And then growing up in Hong Kong and then America, came here in 79 uh, and then sort of wrestled with being Chinese in America, then Asian in America, then Asian American, uh, sort of going through much of what Professor Huang did in a, in a different different context slightly, uh, but, but things that implicated each other. Yeah, so. It's fascinating. Well, if anyone uh, doesn't have any further comments, we have to really thank you, uh, Dr. Huang, for your great thank generosity you. and in extending this conversation uh, so long. And uh, um, so we'll be looking forward to your new work. And, uh, well, thank you, Veronica. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, really nice chatting. Thank you, everyone. Good luck. Let me know if there's anything Hunter can do and Professor Juan yep. is good. I'll actually probably hook, try to hook up with you at Hunter at some point. <laughs>